again, this is CITR 101.9 FM. And keep tuned in because we got Fun Drive com- coming up tomorrow at noon. So it starts, all the fun starts tomorrow at noon. So you're going to love it. A long time ago, in a city far, far away, CITR was born. In the decade ahead, America will be in space. CITR is already there. <laughs> Astronaut Neil Armstrong had this to say about CITR. That's one small step for man. <laughs> so vote. CITR 101.9 FM, Vancouver. Herbert R. Tarlock, Chairman. Welcome to the Terry Project Podcast. I'm your host, Gordon Caddock, and I have the special pleasure today of uh, speaking with Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org and prominent environmentalist. Um, we're going to talk today with Bill about um, some uh, what he's been doing around the Keystone Pipeline and what he's going to talk about at the Terry Global Speaker Series on November 16th. Um, what I did today was I wanted to, to really focus on journalism, but I went ahead and um, I asked a lot of UBC faculty what they want to hear from uh, Bill McKibben, and I got some tremendous questions. So I'm just going to really start with journalism and then just go right into those questions. So, Bill, thanks a lot for uh, joining us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So the first question I have is really about what you've been up to lately. Um, Could you explain what is the Keystone Pipeline? Sure. So it's turned into this huge fight. The Keystone Pipeline will run from those tar sands of Alberta uh, down to the Gulf of Mexico if it's built, 1,700 miles. And it had been a kind of regional fight uh, with people along the pipeline route rightly concerned about leaks and with the indigenous community outraged about the toll that it's taking on their lands. But In early summer, our most important climatologist in the States, James Hansen, uh, the NASA climatologist, he he and his crew issued a uh, paper saying that this was the second largest pool of carbon on Earth and that if we burned a large part of it, it would be, quote, essentially game over for the climate. That got my attention, and we started organizing. In August, we had what's been the largest civil disobedience action in the States in about 35 years, 1,253 people, I believe, including a couple of Canadians, the wonderful Naomi Klein, chief among them, uh, arrested. Um, And since then, this movement has just been building and building and building. We will circle the White House in people on November 6th. It should be beautiful. And the president will make a decision one way or the other uh, sometime before the end of the year. Uh, It's turned into the biggest environmental battle in the States in a very long time. And I'm very, very glad to see that Canadians have picked up the fight, too. And there were a couple of hundred people arrested on Parliament Hill last month. And many uh, uh, Canadians are coming down to join uh, with us on November 6th outside the White House. That's excellent news. Um, Catherine Harrison is a professor from UBC Political Science, and she wanted me to ask you 
uh, about this in particular, um, what sort of motivates the decision to um, commit civil disobedience? It's obviously a huge decision, and, and when yeah. do you decide that it's appropriate? Well, it's one tool, I guess, in the toolkit of activists, and it's not the one you want to reach for all the time. But there are moments when, in the American tradition anyway, it's a way to dramatize the moral urgency of something, to say, excuse me, I need your attention. This thing is so important that I'm willing to go get arrested for it. And what was interesting about these Washington civil disobedience things was it wasn't the usual suspects. We said, we don't want college kids to be the cannon fodder here. Uh, It's maybe not the best time in the world, given our economy, for an 18-year-old to have an arrest record. Uh, Instead, we want people who've spent their lives pouring carbon into the atmosphere. Now, we didn't ask people how old they were, because that would have been rude. But we asked, who was president when you were born? And the uh, biggest cohort of arrestees were born in the FDR and Truman administrations. So we really were getting um, um, people uh, uh, of all kinds, and it was beautiful to see. And I think very powerful, partly for that reason. We also told everybody, if you want to get arrested, you better be wearing a necktie or a dress. We want to make visually the point that we are not the radicals here. Radicals are people who are willing to alter the composition of the atmosphere. And that's the most radical thing anyone's ever done. So, you know, Exxon and Suncor and whoever, these guys are radicals. We're sort of conservatives. We'd kind of like to see the world in something the same shape as the one we were born into. Yeah, I was wondering myself why conservatives aren't also conservationists. But uh, Justin Ritchie from the Alma Mater Society, our student union, heads up the uh, Sustainability Initiative. And he was particularly interested in asking you how how this movement and the larger um, these larger issues are portrayed in media and how you feel the role, what the role of news media is and how they're doing at um, uh, illuminating these issues. Well, look, you have to break through. Um, and we're, you know, it's very hard. Uh, the media doesn't necessarily cover this kind of protest and things. It doesn't really like to. It would much rather not annoy the powers that be and so on. But if you make enough noise, then eventually you kind of break through and they have no choice but to do some coverage. And I must say in the last couple of weeks, it's been pretty good. The New York Times broke a really powerful story explaining uh, exactly how it how it was that the TransCanada had managed to subvert the environmental review of this pipeline project. In short, TransCanada had been allowed by the U.S. State Department to submit a list of three companies that they wanted to review the project. The State Department picked the top name on the list, even though if you go to their website, they describe themselves as a major client of TransCanada's. So the whole thing was just a uh, uh, incestuous, I guess would be the best word and depressing in that way. Yeah, it really stunk. And it's encouraging to see that um, your name is all over the New York Times op-ed page, and I think they wrote an editorial in, in your favor or against the Trans-Canada. Or exactly right. The, Times, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, and a lot of other newspapers and things have come out on the right side of this. So I also wanted to talk to you about um, a little bit of sort of strategy about what where are your demands? What are the most effective demands? Do you um, work on, on local levels with particular uh, struggles, pipeline by pipeline, or do you make a broader ca- claim about the decarbonation of, 
our economy and these sorts of things. Um, Olav Slaymaker from the Department of Geography points to how there's a polarization, polarization between believers and, and naysayers, or believers of decarbonization and people who um, rather take it step by step. So I wanted to get a sense for yeah. you, sort of how do you craft your message? We do uh, all things at all times. Most of my work the last three years has been in founding and helping build this movement called 350.org, which has become the most widespread climate campaign on the planet. Um, in some ways, the most widespread political movement on the planet, or at least that's what CNN said once we'd carried out 15,000 rallies in every country on earth except North Korea. So depending on what country you're talking about, the work is very, very different and the strategies are very, very different. And, uh, you know, one place you're working on bike paths and the next place you're working on carbon emission laws and the next place you're working on coal ports and so on and so forth. Uh, to some degree, it's opportunistic. And to some degree, you have to figure out how to try to make it all come together because unless we can get a, a, you know, some kind of global commitment to raise the price of carbon, we're probably not going to get all of this done in time. Uh, since we're not getting that at the moment, since the UN process is broken, we have to work double hard to try and keep carbon in the ground where we can in places like the tar sands. My name is Gordon Kadek and you're listening to the um, Terry Project podcast on CRTR 101.9 FM. And I'm here with Bill McKibben who says the uh, UN process, the climate process is broken. And um, Aaron Crockett, the president of the Environmental Science Student Association here at UBC, wants to know from Bill McKibben, um, how can students, university students in particular, uh, make their voices most heard? It's very important for students to do all kinds of work around their campus and community, but my sense is UBC has done an awful lot of that work, uh, that it's you know a, a showpiece in many ways. So I would also say don't spend all your time sort of gilding the lily there and get out and get involved politically, nationally. Uh, uh, Canada turns out to be a huge... Um, a uh, uh, huge force in this question of whether or not we're going to deal with the climate. And at the moment, the Canadian government is, I'm afraid, leaving its biggest legacy for the century in terms of carbon emissions into the atmosphere. That's not the sort of things we're used to having Canada famous for. Canada is supposed to be helping other countries solve problems, not create them for people all over the world. So we really need you guys digging in politically. And we know you have leaders in that part of the world who are uh, uh, up to the task and, and are doing the organizing, people like my friend Elizabeth May or, or whoever, uh, there's some real opportunities to get involved in a international way. And i got to say, my experience at 350.org is it's young people all over the world that are leading this fight. So don't wait to uh, you know, graduate to get out on the national stage. Get out there now. Another question that um, Catherine Harrison had from UBC Political Science was that um, not only this country, but really this province in particular is a significant producer of fossil fuels, uh, particularly coal. And um, there is a proposed pipeline, gateway pipeline, from the tar sands to yeah. uh, the coast of BC. So what is your message to um, British Columbians about this pipeline and, and how can we act to stop it? Well, do whatever you can to stop it. And I think the people to line up behind are the indigenous communities who seem to be doing a uh, uh, terrific job. And uh, I think that they're really, really powerful. Um, 
um, uh, in this fight. And, I, you know, it's, it, it, it's going to take them a long time to try and defeat all those indigenous communities and all the people in British Columbia. But we need you guys fighting just as hard as people in Nebraska are fighting and as the rest of us who've been going to jail and whatever are fighting. That's a good segue to my next question. Um, Penny Gerstein is a professor and director of the School of Community and Regional Planning at UBC. And she wants to know from you, Bill, what is climate justice? Well, I mean, it means many things. But, of course, one of the things it means is that the first victims of climate change uh, tend not to be the people who've caused the most trouble. Um, In fact, you know, really two-thirds of the planet's done nothing to contribute to climate change. It's only places that use a lot of fossil fuel. And so it's incredibly unjust that the people, many of them on the front lines of climate change, damage are coming from those places. It's one of the reasons at 350 that we try so hard always to be working in solidarity all around the world. Professor Sens, Alan Sens from the UBC Political Science Department and here from the Terry Project as well, wants to know your thoughts on a recently published uh, article in Nature that discusses how unlikely it is to avert the serious impacts of global warming. Um, If uh, our scientific estimates are even grimmer than we expect, and the politically the political solutions that we are proposing now can't even be achieved. Um, does does a sense of grim foreboding really sort of set into your activism? How do we, what do we do? Uh, you know, my last book was full of grim foreboding. Uh, we're definitely not going to stop climate change. We've already created a new Earth. That's why I gave that book its odd title, E A R T H. Um, the only question now is how much of a new world we're going to create. And uh, that's still up to us. I mean, we've raised the temperature one degree. There's another degree in the pipeline from carbon we've already emitted. The question is whether that's going to be four or five degrees or whether we can stop short of that. So this is perhaps a... Um the, the grimmest of my questions, and ironically, comes from Kurt Grimm, professor at Earth and Ocean Science. Um, he, he wants to know whether or not you've considered um, whether a, a collapse of our civilization may be required to create the sort of changes um, necessary. Well, look, you can make that argument, and people have. Jim Lovelock and people have said, I, I just can't make it because I know how many completely innocent people are going to get taken down in the process and how much of the rest of the DNA of this planet is going to get taken down in the process. And we don't need to do it. We know what we need to do. We're capable of making the switch. The thing that's preventing us from doing it is the greed and political power of a tiny sliver of our society. Uh, really, those people that everyone at Occupy Wall Street's calling the 1%, uh, especially the ones who happen to run the fossil fuel industry. Um, and so, you know, we're crazy if we can't get that under some kind of control. George Hoberg actually wanted to... Um to speak to you about the Occupy Wall Street movement. He's a professor of forest research management and blogger at greenpolicyprof.org. He's concerned maybe that the focus on economic issues could deflect attention from um, the climate change movement. Do you have that same concern? Well, we've had, we've been, uh, we've had none of that at all. Uh, people, you know, it's been great watching them. Um, 
the connections that we've been making along this pipeline thing. Uh, in fact, I just had a, uh, someone just sent me an article, linked to the article that I wrote for today's edition of the Occupy Boston Globe. Uh, I've been to Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Boston and Occupy DC. Uh, and everywhere found people who completely understand that corporate domination has screwed up not only our financial system, but our climate system. And so we're fighting back again. Another question about the Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, what do you think are the strengths and, strengths and weaknesses of the leaderless approach that it u- utilizes? I haven't given it a huge amount of thought. Uh, the strength is that there's no one who takes control, you know, control of it and runs away with it. And I guess the weakness, I don't know. I don't really know if there is a weakness. I guess it's, it takes more time to enunciate a kind of set of demands and things. On the other hand, those demands will be widely shared as they are enunciated. So I kind of like it. I really liked the human microphone uh, at Occupy Wall Street, the sort of sense that everyone was engaged in every speech and debate. It was really fun. Great. Um, maybe I want to allude back to um, the question about um, about media that, from Justin Ritchie from the AMS. Justin wonders how there can be people that so completely live in denial and how we can reach them. So, for example, he listed Texans that feel the extreme brunt of climate change through drought and these sorts of things. Um, How do we reach that? Well, there's no, like, magic way to do it. You've just got to do the work of going out and organizing. Um, And that's what we do at places like, you know, with stuff like 350. And we have lots of people in Texas uh, all the time doing this kind of work. Um, Even in Texas, people are getting the word, you know. Um, um, They look around and see what's happening. They know it's not supposed to be happening like that. The head of the Texas Forest Fire Fighting Service said, Last month, when they had a firestorm outside Austin, no human being has ever fought forest fires in conditions like these. That word gets around. Um, um, The miracle is that something like 73% or something of Americans really understand that the planet's warming up. It's a miracle because the oil industry has spent a gazillion and a half dollars uh, uh, trying to make sure that no one does understand. So does... Does the media represent that 73% of the, the populace shares that view, or are they behind? The media is not leading this. It's not been a proud, global warming has not been a proud moment for the media. There's no getting around that. Uh, it spent far too long trying to strike some kind of false balance and so on and so forth. But that's not the, you know, that's not really, I, I think, the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest problem is that uh, there are people paid to misinform people, and they spend an almost unlimited amount of money. And, you know, the fossil fuel industry is the most profitable industry on Earth, and at least in America's political system, it doesn't take that much money to to corrupt the system, to warp it, to keep it from happening. So at 350.org, you've taken some extraordinary measures in fostering real global grassroots activism on this issue. You held a a rally that I think spanned 189 countries, the largest global day of action. 
um, ever. And so I wanted to ask you, when was there a point where you realized this was necessary? Was there a point where you realized the traditional political system wasn't working? Yes. Um, in fact, sort of there was. You know, I wrote the first book about global warming, and so, I, you know, my thought was we would tell tell people what the problem was and they would adjust to it and uh you know that would be uh politicians would do the thing that needed doing but that's not what happened because they were getting so many threats from the fossil fuel industry and i eventually realized the only way to counter that money power was with movement power and that's what we've been trying to build. And that's why it'll be so much fun to come up to UBC and see what everybody's up to up there. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I, thank I, you. And I hope all UBC students join us on November 16th at the Chan Center to, to hear you speak and some, offer some stories about this movement. And, uh, and we hope that, uh, that, that this community will join that movement. Can't wait. Can't wait. Take good care, brother. Take care. Bye, Bill. Bye. And that was a, uh, a clip, a feature interview by the Terry Project, which is a 